Amen. What a, what a glorious and comforting truth. The God of angel armies is on our side. Please open your Bibles, church, to Psalm 3. We're going to be spending our time in Psalm 3 this morning. And I trust that you will be greatly encouraged by our time there as, as I've been in studying and preparing to preach this psalm to you. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can open it and it'll be on page 448 in that pew Bible. This is Psalm 3. The Word of God reads, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are not unaware of the problems we face in our lives. You know every conflict that we have faced, are facing, or will face. You are aware of our every enemy. You know every evil thought and evil deed that will ever be done to us, Lord. You know every false word that will ever be spoken about us. Would you help us to endure, Lord, all these things faithfully? Not returning evil for evil. Not compromising our character and devotion to you. As we wait for you, Lord, to deliver and save us, may we learn to suffer well. May we learn greater measures of obedience to you. When we are under attack, may we maintain our righteousness and seek your justice, O Lord, with patience. Would you help us to learn how to seek you and your salvation and how to find comfort and confidence while we wait. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The Lord Jesus told us in John 16, that in this world you will have tribulation. But what? Take heart. You will have tribulation in this world, but, let's say it together, take heart. I have overcome the world, he says. How many of you have found that to be true in your life, that it has been a life uh, faced with trouble and calamity and tribulation and trial and difficulty and division and strife and sin and betrayal 
and hurt and estrangement and exile and pain and tears and everything. Just keep going. Take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Unfortunately, we find ourselves, as already been mentioned this morning, in the midst of a, a people, a generation, a nation, a world that has been marred by sin and where people wrong each other and where people do evil against each other. And when you live in a world like that, then and you're willing to live with people around you. It's only a matter of time before trouble comes your way and conflict comes your way, especially so for the person, the scriptures say, who, are the, who is trusting in the Lord and seeking to live a righteous life. It's like they have a target on them when they live in that sort of way that others who despise God and who despise the moral standard that God has, and despise the people of God who are trying to live that out, they become the target. And they're in the way of them accomplishing their own evil purposes for their own glory. And there's many. There's many more out there like that than there are who are with the Lord and who are trusting in him and who are relying on him. Have you found that When you trust in the Lord, people have turned against you. People have attacked you. People have sought your harm. Have you found that to be the case? How do you feel when that happens? What do you do when that happens? In our passage, David has been betrayed by none other than his, his very own son. He's been betrayed by his son. He's been betrayed by his nation. They attempt a coup. They start a civil war. They threaten to divide the kingdom of Israel. They seek to murder David and place his son Absalom as king in his stead. It's hard to imagine the anguish, the turmoil, the anxiety, the pain, the anger, the feelings of betrayal and resentment and shame of one's own son seeking to kill his father and take the throne. What problems do you have right now? What conflict are you in? I don't say this to belittle your conflict, but when we think of David's conflict and his trials, do, do not our problems shrink a little bit? Like, well, at least my son's not trying to kill me. This is what David is up against. And I think it's important for us to, to learn from David's example and that he has something important to teach to us because he finds a way. And even in the midst of such a chaotic and troublesome time in his life, he finds a way while he's waiting for God's deliverance to find confidence and comfort in God in the very midst of his conflict. How is it that he could be hunted but not haunted how is it that he could be in such danger and yet at such rest? How is it that David could be so helpless and yet so confident in God? I think if we'll listen to David, who wrote this psalm under the inspiration of the Spirit, we too will be equipped to seek comfort and confidence in the Lord in the midst of our conflicts. So the main idea here is right there in your bulletin and your notes. How do followers of Christ find comfort and confidence in the midst of even life-threatening conflict. 
I left some verbs blank there so you can fill them out and, and, and track along with me. But the first is this. How do we find comfort and confidence in the midst of life-threatening conflict? It's to lament your problem. Lament. L-A-M-E-N-T. <laughs> Some of you were wondering. Lament your problem. What's David's problem? We see it in the superscription or that little, that little heading of, uh, at the top of the psalm. It gives us some background information. This is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so that brings us to 2 Samuel chapters 12 to 19 as the background. Any of you been in 2 Samuel lately? All right, let me fill you in. Uh, so in 2 Samuel, we know that David has been, been anointed and then raised up as king uh, and he is made, uh, uh, God makes a covenant with David that, that he's going to cause one of David's own sons to sit on his throne to be the anointed one, the Messiah who delivers Israel and the nations from all their enemies. That's what God promises David. And David is king, and David reigns very successfully. But then David makes a huge error, sinful, grievous sin when he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And then after that, we see David has sons, and one of his sons, Amnon, ends up raping his sister, Tamar. And Absalom is Tamar's brother. He ends up, a few years later, having his servants kill Amnon, his brother. Do you see David's problems are big? Then after Absalom has Amnon killed, three years he lives in exile, can't come to Jerusalem. But then finally, Absalom is brought to Jerusalem, and then when he's in Jerusalem, he's there two years before David is willing to allow him to come into his presence. But then when David finally allows Absalom, his son, to come into his presence, he welcomes him. And it says in the next verse that, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, that Absalom... Got, got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And it's almost like as soon as he got this, he swelled with pride. And his rebellion and his plans to overthrow his father began. And so this is what he would do. When, when people would come from the surrounding regions to come for, 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 for the king to make a judgment, for them to plead their case in Jerusalem, Absalom would stand there and be like, oh, if only I were king, I would settle all of your issues for you, and I would make sure that everyone would be taken care of. And he begins to, to talk to them in this sort of way and begin to recruit people, and he forms this conspiracy to overthrow his father. And in chapter 12, uh, verse, or excuse me, in chapter 15, verse 1, it indicates that, that he did that for four years until Chapter 15, verse 12, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And it kept, kept increasing to the point where it says in 2 Samuel 15, 13, that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. David, who was the rightful king, innocent in regard to this matter, finds himself the minority in Israel, 
finds himself in it having the, the many, the majority opposing him. And so it's no wonder how David says in Psalm 3, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me all around. And if it wasn't enough for the majority of Israel to then be gathered to the evil son to try to overthrow the righteous king, his father, we also see men of high caliber, even a man who was one of David's right-hand men, who was his counselor, Ahithophel, he even betrays David and follows Absalom. Many David says, are saying, of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And so how, how, what could David be, be feeling? It's hard to even imagine. His problems are big. Where can he go? What can he do? How would you feel? What would you do? This was a situation that you found yourself in. David must have felt as if he was beneath the very darkest shadow discouragement could cast. And it tells us in 2 Samuel 15 that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives as he's leaving Jerusalem. It says that he went up weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered. That was how great his shame was. He was utterly humiliated and devastated. And there's perhaps a no darker moment in his life before this. Charles Spurgeon said, If all the trials which have come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Spurgeon says, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. So David's problems are massive. His heart is broken. His soul is vexed. His whole body feels the burden of stress and anxiety over such a dark and disastrous situation. Have you experienced anything like that? Even a little bit. What did you do? What did David do? He lamented his problem. What does David do with his problem? He brings it to the Lord in prayer. In facing great anguish and increasing danger, he raises a lament. One dictionary defined a lament as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. To put it in simple terms, it's telling God your problem. And so as David is facing a giant problem, he does, as the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, Pastor Kevin mentioned already, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's what David does. He doesn't hold it inside. He says, I have a big problem and I need to share this with God. I'm not going to just get depressed and go in the dark in a corner and not say anything. I'm going to open up my mouth and speak to God who hears me. Who, who will lend an ear, a compassionate ear to hear me. What a comfort that we can speak to God in such dark moments. Cast your anxieties on him. When the problems are massive, you must go to God and tell him about it. Lift up your voice and cry to him. Express it with all the pain that it's causing you. Just tell him about it. Don't give in to despair. And also, don't endlessly stare at the, the problem. 
Take the problem to God. Voice it to him. I love the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. You see, even in the darkest moments, we can go to the Lord and we can offer him the mess that's on our plate, the trial and the trouble before us, and we can find his help. We can find that he's a compassionate God. It says here, as that hymn goes on, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And one last stanza says, do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Listen to this. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. David has found that his friends and even his own son have despised and forsaken him. So he takes it to the Lord in prayer. And he finds the Lord to be his shield. And he finds solace there. Are you in conflict right now? Is there trouble on your plate? Is there temptations that you are experiencing, facing? Is there anguish in your soul? Go to the Lord now. Run to him immediately and just lay it all before him. Share it all with him. Tell him how it makes you feel. Tell him, tell him your fears. Tell him your anxieties. Cast it all on him. Lament your problem. But as I mentioned before, David doesn't only lament his problem. He also does something else. And this is important. Because lamentation, while appropriate, is, is not the, the end of what we should be seeking to do as we wait for deliverance and seek the Lord's help. You see, it's not good for us to only focus on the problem. We have to lift our eyes and look to our protector. This leads to the, the second thing to do. Look to your protector. If you want to have comfort, if you want to find confidence in the midst of great trouble and trials and conflict, you have, to, you have to lament. You have to bring it to the Lord, but then you have to move beyond that. you got to move beyond that. You cannot only fix your eyes on the problem. You have to fix your eyes on the protector, the Lord himself. The God who, as David says here, is a shield about him. David fixes his eyes on God. He sets his gaze on God. Look at what he says here. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. And then he says, but you. But you. And I love that. And right there, everything begins to change in, in the direction of his prayer. That's the most crucial and important shift. He's thinking of the others, his enemies, how numerous, how many, what they're doing, what they're saying. But you, God. He moves his eyes from his enemies to his protector. And with that, God, with his thoughts fixed on God, light begins to penetrate his darkness. The fog of despair and doubt begins to slowly fade away to the comfort of God's character and works 
that warm the heart of David. One commentator, Peter Craigie, said that if one gazes too long upon the enemy and his might, the enemy grows in the mind's eye to gigantic proportions and his citadels reach up to the skies. And he, he has this verse he's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 128 where they spied out the land and came back and thought, they're massive. And, and, and it's like all the way up to the heavens, they have these fortified walls. And it, because all they could do was think about their problem and how weak they were. Peter Craig goes on and says, the hypnotic power of the enemy is broken. I love that. When one turns one's gaze toward God, who is able to fight and grant victory. That's exactly what David is doing here. So I want to ask you, do you stare endlessly at your problem? Do you lament your problem endlessly? You should lament it. But there's a time to move past it, to set your eyes on the Lord, to look to your protector and fix your eyes on the God of the impossible. If not, your problems will, will be impossible for you. And peace and comfort and confidence in the midst of a situation when you have absolutely no way forward on your own will be the darkest and most despairing of situations for you. You will grow more discouraged. You will feel more and more helpless. So set your eyes on the Lord and on who he is. And on what he has done, his perfect works, his perfect character, and then begin to be comforted and encouraged. Remind yourself of who he is and what he has done. This is what David does. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. What an amazing couple statements that David makes about the Lord. You, O Lord, this recalls the divine name Yahweh, his covenantal name that he revealed himself to Moses and to Israel, to Moses at the burning bush. But it's this same Yahweh, the Lord, who brought judgments on, on Pharaoh and his armies, who brought deliverance and redemption, who brought these plagues, who brought miraculous victory, who gave the law at Sinai, who was a supernatural provider in the desert, who was the one who conquered all Israel's enemies as they entered into the promised land. It, this is the Lord Yahweh who told Samuel to go and anoint the prophet David as king. This is the one who gave David the promises that David's son, one of David's sons, would be the Messiah. This is the Lord who enabled David to conquer the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Ammonites, the Malachites, the Edomites, who 2 Samuel chapter 8, it says twice in that chapter that the Lord gave victory to David everywhere he went. See, but you, oh Lord, he begins to grow in confidence. Appropriately then, appropriately then, he says the Lord is a shield about me. And typically in their day, the, the, the shield would have been like a, a, a large round shield. It wouldn't have been uh, so big that it was like shoulder to feet, but uh, kind of a medium size so you could still move it around and it would serve to protect you. Uh, it's a very, very common weapon, and so the metaphor is extremely common as well. But one of the things that David says, he kind of modifies that. He says, you are a shield about me. So it's not just that I have this shield in the front, but Lord, you are a shield for me on every side. Which is important because look down in verse 6. David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who what? Have set themselves against me 
all around. They might have taken battle formation. I might be completely surrounded with no way out. But the Lord is a shield about me. If I have 360 degrees of enemies, I have 360 degrees of Savior and protection. Deuteronomy 33 verse 29 says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Psalm 7 verse 10, My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. So as David looks not just at his problem, but also to his protector, he grows more confident. He finds comfort. He finds peace in who God is. And he not just calls God a shield, but he also then says, my glory. He says to God, you are my glory. Do you realize in this moment, everything is on the line for David, his very life and his reputation, his whole kingdom. And so in this moment, either Absalom, his son, David's going to go down as the, the king whose son rebelled and killed his father and took the kingdom. How's that for a noble death? Or he's going, God is going to use even this for God's glory and David's honor and his renown among Israel and the nations. Those are the only two options. And David says, God, you are my glory. My reputation, my honor, everything is dependent on you and what you will do for me. I need you. My reputation is wrapped up in you. My life depends completely on you, and you're my glory. If I'm going to escape this without shame, it's only because you, Lord, are my glory and the lifter of my head. To, to speak of God as the lifter of his head, obviously you know that when people are sad, their heads are hanging. They're sorrowful, they're downcast, they're drooping. When you, not a lot of people weep with their faces up. And so the lifter of my head speaks of God raising him, giving him victory, restoring him, protecting him, delivering him, and the, the, the removal of shame and the bestowal of honor that comes with that. One of the things that God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David is that God promised to make for him a great name, like the great ones of the earth. And so David is looking to the Lord, seeing him as his protector and as his glory, as a lifter of his head. And when he does that, he can't help but grow confidence. He can't help but be comforted. He can't help but, but just, you just see confidence coming out of him in the words that he's saying here. But he not only looks and see, sees the Lord, Yahweh, and it, one who is a shield and his glory, the lifter of his head, he also then remembers how God has acted already on his behalf. He looks to his protector. He finds his heart comforted, his soul encouraged, and his faith strengthened as he considers, listen to verse four, that he cried aloud to the Lord and God answered him. He answered me from his holy hill. David cried to the Lord and God answered him from his holy hill. Because the Ark of the Covenant was placed in Jerusalem on the holy hill, 
and God promised to cause his presence to dwell above the ark. Prayers are directed toward the holy hill. And prayers are even depicted in the scriptures as coming from the holy hill. God answers not only from heaven, but also his holy hill in Jerusalem, with it, which is the footstool for his feet. Derek Kidner, a commentator, writes that God's holy hill was doubly relevant as the place where God had installed both his king, David himself, with all the promises and his ark, the symbol of his earthly throne and of his covenant. And as he says here that not Absalom's decrees, but the Lord's will issue forth from Mount Zion, indeed have already been dispatched there already to determine David's fortunes. And so what is David, when he calls the Lord and he experienced answered prayer, what, what, what did God do? What did David pray for? It's surprisingly simple. We keep reading and David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. What was it that the Lord had answered? David's prayer for sleep and protection, that he could arise without being caught or killed. You know that you're never more vulnerable than when you're asleep. You're an easy target. And when you're asleep, guess what you can't do? You can't keep fleeing from a band of murderers who want to kill you. If you keep fleeing, you keep running out of energy, and if you then don't sleep, you can't replenish your energy, but if you sleep, they can gain ground on you. It's just an all-bad situation. And some of you even know that, that how, how when you're anxious, you, you just can't sleep. Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will lie down and sleep at once, for you alone O Lord, make me dwell safely. And Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. David, of all people, in this situation, we would think is going to be eating, that's a, just what a great phrase, eating the bread of anxious toil. How many of you could not sleep because of what was on your plate? Some of us, maybe, well, my kids are still younger, but maybe some of you who are older and have older kids, you, I can't sleep till my child comes back home. And you can't sleep because you love your child and you're anxious for them to come home. Now multiply that by about a billion for David. He can't sleep not because he's just concerned about his child not coming home. He's concerned about his child coming home and killing him. That's what's on his plate. And so how could he possibly sleep in this situation? He's fleeing. He was being pursued. And he, so he has to be in hiding, and he prays. And he prays, and he wakes up the next morning, and he praises God. And he considers, God has answered my prayer. He has protected me. I was not killed in my sleep. He kept me safe. I went to sleep, I woke up, the Lord sustained me. And one commentator, Alan P. Ross, says here that God sustained him through the night in the midst of his enemies, and that protection was a token of the complete deliverance he expected. And he says later that on the basis of this deliverance, the psalmist expressed his absence of fear over thousands who took their stand against him on every side. 
So he didn't only look to his problem, he brought his problem to the Lord, and then he sought the Lord, he, he, he focused on the Lord, looked at how, uh, who God is as his protector, and he asked the Lord to give him rest, to give him protection. He woke up and began praising the Lord and seeing that God had sustained him and protected him. He went forward in confidence, trusting that God, if you've sustained me this far, then you could do it a little bit more. And you can go with me today. And no matter who's around me or who's attacking me, if I have you with me, Lord, I will be okay. I will not be afraid, he says next, of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why? How, David? David, you're outnumbered. David, the majority are against you. David, those who are out there are greater than us who are here with you. David, you're surrounded. David, you have no chance. David says, I know the Lord. I know my protector. I know my provider. I know my sustainer. I will not be afraid of many thousands who set themselves against me all around. I have the Lord. He is my shield. He is my glory. I will not fear many. I will not fear the mighty. Because I have on my side the Almighty One. It's a humbling reminder for us that even in the greatest conflicts, even while we're waiting, even when we've, we haven't experienced full deliverance, while trouble is still before us, we can find comfort and confidence in the Lord. And so lament your problem, look to your protector. And third, then lean on your Savior. How can we find comfort and confidence in the midst of conflict? Lastly, after we've lamented and then we've looked, we lean. We lean on our Savior. To lean is a metaphor for trusting that's used in the scriptures. Speaks of relying on, resting upon. When you encounter trials, here's the thing. You're being tested. You're being tried. What will your heart go to? What will your heart rely upon? Will it be the Lord or will it be man? Will it be the Lord or, or will it be anything other than God? Will it be the Lord or, or will it be the majority? Will it be the Lord or will it be the many? Will it be the Lord or will it be your technology? Will it be the Lord or will it be your chariots? Will it be the Lord or will it be your horses or your tanks or your airstrikes or whatever it may be? Will it be the Lord? For David, he displays confident trust in the Lord, closing this psalm by leaning on the Lord. And when you lean on the Lord, the way you express that is by continuing to plea and to cry out to the Lord. You keep crying out to him. David can be confident and yet at the same time still be crying to God, save me. Arise, Lord. David knows Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And so firmly believing that, that's why he's crying. He says, Arise, O oh Lord. Such an amazing statement. Do you guys ever say that one? <laughs> he 
like stuff's going down in your life and you just need to just arise, oh Lord. That's what you need to do. Add that to your prayer, uh, prayer list. What did Moses say in Numbers 10 before they would set out? He says, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, oh Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. Arise, O Lord, pictures God going forth and fighting and conquering for his people. This, this, this plea, arise, O Lord, pleads with God to act, to move, to dispatch the angels, to, to rise and to go before his people and to fight and to march and to deliver and to save and to give victory. He says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Psalm 33, verse 16 and 17 says the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope. Everyone say that, false hope. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is made ready for the battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You lean on the Lord, and the one who leans on him cries out to him and prays and asks for deliverance and does so with an audacious certainty that God will do it. David says next, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. How could David be so confident in stating these things? Well, because God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9, he says that I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will appoint a place for my people and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And I will give you rest from all. Everyone say that one, all, all your enemies. God fulfilled that promise when David conquered Philistines, Moabites, Syrians, Ammonites, Amalekites, Edomites, gave victory to David everywhere he went. He, David's convinced that God has struck down all his enemies on the cheek and break, breaks the teeth of the wicked and that he will continue to do that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you could summarize the whole Bible with a statement, that's probably it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God gets all the glory. God alone must save. God alone must deliver. 100% of me is 0% enough. I don't even know if that makes sense. I didn't even think about that line of it. <laughs> God alone. God alone. As things would play out in 2 Samuel, and granted, we're going beyond the extent of the psalm here. We're kind of we, cheating. We're looking ahead. What happened when David trusted in the Lord? Did it work out for him? We kind of wonder. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, it says uh, we have David's men who actually uh, eventually engage in battle with Absalom. So there's a point where after David has lamented his problem as he's looked to the Lord and he's leaned on the Lord, he has to actually send his men into battle and fight. And it says the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. And it says the battle spread all over the face of the country and the forest, listen to this, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And it says, and Absalom 
happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick of branches of a great oak, and his head got caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Eventually, one of David's commanders, Joab, and and some of the guys with him, find Absalom alive, hanging, stuck by his head in a tree. And they kill him. And they send messengers to run to David and to proclaim to him, Good news for my Lord. The king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. This perfectly illustrates that salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Said the the forest killed more people than the sword because God was at work. God had brought victory. Psalm 5 verse 12 says, You bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Psalm 2, blessed, verse 12 said, blessed are all who take refuge in him. David faced unimaginable circumstances, the darkest of moments. He had the greatest of temptations to be overcome with fear and doubt, to be angry at the Lord and discouraged in his soul. He brought his problem to the Lord. He looked to the Lord. He lamented. He looked. He leaned on his Savior. And when he did that, he gained comfort and confidence. And God came to his rescue. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Would to God that we learn to suffer well like David did, that we might wait patiently, that we might trust unwaveringly, that we might pray passionately, that we might in all our trials, all our difficulties, all our sickness, all our temptations, whatever comes our way and challenge to undermine our faith in God, come what may, may we learn to lament and look and lean for salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, I want to just tie this as I close together with the gospel. You see, David would eventually die, and God promised his, promised, uh, God's people awaited his, David's promised son who would bring salvation to Israel and to the nations. And the pages of the New Testament begins by announcing the good news of the arrival of David's promised son, Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. His name, Jesus, literally means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh's salvation. Very close to, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's his name. And he came to save his people from their sins. But before establishing his kingdom, he offers himself as the Lamb of God in a sacrificial death to take away the sins of the world. And so in doing, he ends up conquering for God's people, not just physical enemies, but our spiritual enemies as well. Sin, death, and Satan. And in Jesus's life, he had many foes. He had many rising up against them. He had many saying, as Pastor Kevin actually read this morning, coincidentally, uh, that while he was on the cross, people saying that he had, there's no salvation for him in God. They mocked him. They laughed at him. They slandered him. And yet Christ, who looked and even felt forsaken as he died on the cross, trusted himself to the one who judges justly. And the scriptures tell us that through his death, he paid our ransom. Through his resurrection, he conquered death. Through his resurrection, he broke the sting of death and shattered the teeth of the devil. He rose victoriously from the grave, ascended into heaven to intercede on our behalf, to send his Holy Spirit, to build his church, and to come again to judge the living and the dead. 
while we focused most of our time here on the example of David, and it would be right for us to consider that before all of us came to know Jesus and believe in him, we had more in common with Absalom than we did with David. Absalom was prideful, conniving, intentionally rebelling against his father, the king. The wages of his sin was death, and God saw to it that Absalom would receive the righteous and grievous punishment of death on a tree. Because of his insurrection, his deception, his rebellion, his mutiny, his civil war, his attempted murder on the king, he died a most humiliating death as he was caught on a tree trying to oppose God's king. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. Everything about Absalom's failure reminds us of the utter vanity, hear that utter vanity, of trying to overthrow or oppose God's king. God will move. God will act. God will see that his king's enemies are conquered under his feet. God's king will be victorious. His enemies will be vanquished. His people will be vindicated. But before we believed in Christ, this is where we found ourselves, like Absalom. We've rebelled against our Father in heaven. We've rejected his Son, the Lord Jesus, as our King. And every one of our sins testified to that. We ourselves deserve the curse of sin and death for our rebellion. But God loved us and sent his Son. It's amazing, as I was reading 2 Samuel, when David found out that Absalom, his son, had died, you know how David responded? He, he, he was heartbroken even though his son wanted to kill him. He said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. And listen to this way he says. He said, would that I have died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You could think, David, that's outrageous. Why would you say such a thing like that? And Joab, his commander, actually rebuked him for how sad he was over this. But what David could have wished in his deepest moments of personal grief because he loved his son so much, that he would die in his place. Christ, the promised son of David, actually did. Do you hear that? The promised son of David actually died in our place. He didn't just wish to, and he did it because of his love. David loved his son, so he said that. Christ came and loved us as his sons and did that. He came to bear the righteous wrath of God. He died in our place. He was punished for our sin to forgive us and reconcile us to him. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Galatians chapter three, Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, you're on the wrong side. You've joined the rebellion. You've opposed God's king. But yet God will still have terms of peace to offer you through the shed blood of his son, that if you will come, and you will turn, and you will look, and then you will live, and you will be forgiven. And you will join his side, and he will adopt you, and he will forgive you, and he will love you, and he will protect you. And if you die one day in service to him, he will raise you to be with him and his people forever.
And if you trust in him and you begin to walk with him, expect conflict. David, the prophets, Christ, many righteous believers since have walked in righteousness and encountered much opposition and conflict, even from their own families as David did. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 34 and following, that everyone, hear it closely, is the words of the king, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Hear this, beloved. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Embrace God's son. Take refuge in him. All who take refuge in him will be blessed and live for him. And when you encounter trials, run to him. Lament. And look and lean on him because salvation belongs to the Lord. Father, we praise you. We lift up praise to you and say with the great multitude of Revelation chapter 7, salvation belongs to God, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. May blessing and honor and glory and power be to you, O Lord. You are our shield. You are a shield about us. You are our glory. You are the lifter of our head in every trial, in every situation, even in death. May we not fear many thousands gathered against us all around, Lord. May we live faithfully to you, for you, and find comfort and confidence, Lord, even in the midst of our conflicts, for your glory. In our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.